0: Well good morning, good afternoon, good evening uh, to all of you who are here today with us in person at UN headquarters. And also if you are, uh, if anyone is seeing us live stream, which we are meant to be doing, uh, thank you very much for joining us from around the world. Uh, as you can see from the title, I won't repeat it for the sake of time, uh, we, have, uh, and we have an ambitious uh, program today. Uh, we do have one late edition. Uh, Ambassador Khan uh, from Indonesia is with us today, uh, and he's very welcome to jump. We thank you for coming to us so soon. Uh, my colleague David O'Connor will moderate, I'll just say a few words, I'll be brief because we want to hear from our panel, uh, we'll have some video recordings for you, uh, and then of course we want to be able to take questions uh, from the audience. Uh, Now, the side event was conceived uh, with the support of the permanent mission of Belize to the United Nations and the permanent mission of the Dominican Republic to the United Nations. And with special thanks to Cindy Novello of the Belize Mission and Claudia Maria mansfield Perez from the uh, Dominican Republic Mission, Uh, without their efforts, this event would not have uh, been able to take place today. Uh, For those of you not familiar with Stakeholder Forum, it is an international, not-for-profit NGO. Uh, accredited uh, and with consultative status with the United with the uh, with ECOSOC since 1966, accredited with the United Nations Environment Programme since 2005, and in and observer status with the uh, network, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, stakeholder forum has for more than 25 years been a bridge between those who have a stake in sustainable development and the international forums where decisions are made in their name. Now, before I, I hand over to David, I'd like to just say a few words about what we hope to consider in the next hour or so. Uh, while this event will focus on SDG 7, ensure access to affordable, reliable, sustainable, and modern energy, uh, progress on this goal is crucial for achieving all of the Sustainable Development Goals, or certainly almost all of them. In this regard, the importance of integrated approaches needed to implement the 2030 Agenda is crucial, and it is, of course, one of the headline themes of this HLPF. We must identify ways to uh, to exploit positive interactions and mitigate trade-offs among goals, including foraging inclusive multi-stakeholder coalitions behind programs of accelerated action. Uh, identif- identifying ways to empower communities enabling sectoral actors to work together and building cross sectoral alliances that can be strengthened that can strengthen the economic social and environmental aspects of the SDG implementation is essential to not do to, to not do so is to ignore a threat that uh, to our well-being that is all too real for example it's nearly a year since the unprecedented floods in Pakistan in 2022, in 2022, and in that same year Madagascar in one month endured four typh- ty, uh, typhoons. And these are just two of the countries uh, that you know, were countless climate change-driven disasters over the past year or two in the past decade have taken place, not at all to minimize the uh, the risk and threat to small island, low-lying small island states and low-lying coastal communities, which are of course crucial uh, in this effort to achieve the SDGs. The Caribbean, home um, to two of our host missions today, uh, Belize and the Dominican Republic, continues to endure more than, uh, and, and much more vulnerable than it has before to hurricanes of ever-increasing strength. According to one report in 2018, hurricanes in that region are twice as strong as they were 60 years ago. And just this week, less than 48 hours ago, here in the United States, where opinions around the change in climate are divided, sadly, by political lines, torrential rainfall in the very prosperous and idyllic state of Vermont uh, showed that catastrophic floods can happen anywhere, not just near rivers and oceans. Uh, and now in Phoenix, Arizona, in the, state, in the state of Arizona, the region is now in its 12th straight day of 110 degree Fahrenheit temperatures. Uh, and of course, uh, patients and resources are being stretched very thin. And just on Monday, according to a study published in the journal Nature Medicine, more than 61,000 people died because of last year's brutal summer heat waves across Europe. Then the Canadian fires, the California fires, uh, the extreme heat in Mexico, it, without I could go on all day, and we all, you all know just how serious it is. So, despite such a grim state of affairs, I'm hopeful that we'll hear examples of renewable energy and energy efficiency initi- initiatives in Belize and the Dominican Republic and elsewhere that could be replicated and someday ease the devastation felt by so many uh, around the world by the changing climate. Now, um, let me just quickly. Um, now, uh, before I hand things over to David, uh, Ambassador Fuller, uh, you know, as Belize is the official organizer of this event, and you are our de facto host, would you like to say a couple words before we get started?
1: Uh, thank you very much. Uh, and indeed, uh, just uh, briefly to say, uh, welcome uh, to this event, uh, co-organized uh, Uh, with the Dominican uh, Republic uh, and Belize. Um, The issues of renewable energy are, of course, very important uh, for the the DR and Belize as we are small island developing states uh, within the Caribbean. And uh, we uh, always say uh, in our climate change negotiation process, the importance of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And uh, we say that even though we ourselves are not the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases, but we want to show the world that if we can transform our energy sector uh, from uh, fuel depend- from fossil fuel dependence to renewable energy, then the rest of the world can do likewise. In particular, those who are the major emitters around the world. Uh, so we're hoping that through these events uh, like these, uh, indeed, we can influence what occurs uh, in, in other parts of the world that we can make that transformation uh, from uh, fossil fuel-based uh, energy to renewable energy. So uh, uh, welcome indeed uh, to this event and I look forward to uh, interacting with you in the next hour. Thank you. Now, uh, pardon me for just a to moment. The, I'm, we have a- My name
2: is Ryan
0: Cole. Let me-
3: I am the energy director.
0: Let me just restart that. I need to change our screen, so pardon me for that. This go to the right window. There we go. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we have uh, two presentations. This is the first one. Uh, it's about three minutes, uh, and we'll begin now.
2: Good day. My name is Ryan Cole. I am the Energy Director for the Ministry of Public Utilities, Energy, Logistics, and e in the. It is an honor to address you today with regards to the energy sector in the Access to energy is vital to economic, social, and human development and forms the building blocks for modern human progress. Globally, we are in the midst of an energy transition that continues to evolve due to challenges and uncertainties facing the global energy systems as economies continue to recover from the fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic. As a result of rebounding economic systems, worldwide demand for energy and raw materials continue to grow, and the climate change long synonymous with carbon-based fuel sources form the basis for a probable energy crisis. Unfortunately, these challenges are real and immediate. The coming years will likely see a rapid changing energy landscape as countries accelerate the transition to a low carbon energy pathway. This process encourages governments and energy stakeholders to undertake an urgent review of their strategies and energy policy development. To accomplish the essential market transformation necessary to cope with these challenges, countries must place more focused attention on adopting a holistic approach to energy resilience and security, and the use of advanced and distributed energy technologies. In Belize, renewables represent more than 53% of our total electricity consumption in 2022, and almost 90% of in-country generation. As we look to meet our 2030 targets, Belize will need to increase in country generation by the way of new renewable energy installations. Currently, the majority of electricity generated in country comes from renewable sources such as hydro and biomass plants. Our 2030 goals have us generating over 75% of electricity from renewable energy sources. To meet our ever increasing demand, and achieve energy security, believes we'll need to invest heavily in solar-voltaic plants and grid-tied storage systems. We must also diversify generating sources and introduce mechanisms to allow for distributed generation. The objective is to make our power system much more flexible, interconnected, and consumer-centered. This requires an important transformation of the grid. We will need to be innovative in smart grids, in demand response, and in energy storage. These objectives may sound ambitious, but the stakes are too high not to be ambitious. The political momentum is there. The focus of Belize's energy policy, and in particular, on renewable energy and energy efficiency, illustrates the government's commitment to supporting this transition. As we move forward, We are confident that renewable energy will play a decisive role in achieving sustainable development and a climate safe future. Thank you.
4: Hello. Can you hear me everyone? Yep. My name is David O'Connor and I'm moderating today's session. Um, I used to work at the United Nations some time back, a couple of years back, Uh, supporting the negotiation of the sustainable development goals and then I got too old (laughs) so now um, I would like to proceed uh, to our first in-person panelist um, Vice Minister Luis Madera Sued Uh, I didn't get a chance to introduce Carlos Fuller um, but uh, I won't Introduce him at length, just to say he is the ambassador in PR of Belize here at the UN, and he's worked uh, with the World Meteorological Organization in various capacities over the years and with the uh, SBSTA of the uh, Framework Convention on Climate Change. And most interestingly, he holds the order of the British Empire, (laughs) OBE. I don't know for what, but that's good (laughs) enough for me. Anyway, so that's Carlos. Then Luis... um, where is Luis anyway? Oh, there you are. Okay, Luis, yes. Uh, Vice Minister of Planning and Public Investment of the Ministry of Economy, Planning and Development uh, of uh, Dominican Republic. the Dominican yeah. Republic. Yes, I don't want to get your country wrong. <laughs> that would be a very big mistake. Um, and uh, Luis has a degree in business administration, a master's in economics, um, and he's also a statistician. He's a national expert in sustainable development for many years, uh, advising and coordinating the High-Level Interagency Commission for Sustainable Development. Um, currently, he coordinates, I'd be interested to hear a bit more about this. It's an interesting title, The Prosperity Subcommittee of the Commission. Um, since the, one of the SDG objectives is shared prosperity, let's see how that looks in the Dominican Republic. Where he has systematized the design of the Sustainable Production and Consumption Roadmap, the prioritization of the national SDG targets, and the implementation of the first national survey on industrial development and business sustainability. I find that also very interesting because I was involved way back when in my last life in the development of Malaysia's industrial master plan. So I know a lot about industrial. Planning and be interested to hear what Dominican Republic is doing in that regard. But we're here to talk about energy today. Energy is foundational to everything, of course, uh, as the laws of thermodynamics would have us understand. So um, we know that Belize has a very high share of renewables in its energy mix, in its electricity mix at the moment, and Dominican Republic, much less so. And so, um, we would be interested to hear how you are meeting the challenges of raising that share. You have universal access to electricity, I believe, so that's not an issue here, as it is in many other countries around the world, but the renewables story is different, yeah. So, please let me hear from you, Luis. Thank you, David, uh, for giving me the
5: floor, and... and good afternoon to everyone. It's my pleasure to co-organize this event together, a stakeholder forum, and lead by Belize in this important topic. The Dominican economy has grown over 5% during the last 30 years, reaching a GDP in 2022 of $10,700. One of the great challenges that threaten this economic growth is the dependence of, on the use of fossil fuels to meet the demand of for generation. Being after education and held in best, the greatest burden in uh, in the public budget. So promoting renewable uh, energies influences not only the environment, but the financial impact in our country. In 2022, 83% of electricity generation was based on fossil fuels, like like you said, David. It's a it's a thing, very thing for us. The remaining 16 came from renewable uh, sources, which ratifies our vulnerability to international to international fuel, fuel markets given this scenario and the increase of, in the demand of electricity given by the great economic growth it is necessary to implement far reaching uh, uh, reforms at the political institutional regulatory and financial levels that contribute to increasing the proportion of renewable energies in, and improving and improving the, the country's energy efficiency in this regard Dominican Republic has, has a climate goal that by 2025, renewable uh, energies contribute 25% of the electricity generation and 30% by 2030. So how are we doing it? The Dominican Republic's efforts start back to 2011, when uh, we promote the law 205707 uh, on, on incentives for renewable energies. This law contains three main economic vectors. One, promote diversification on the energy matrix to reduce dependence of uh, imported uh, uh, fossil fuels. Second, enable generation for uh, uh, for self-sufficiency and increase competition in the energy market. And third, and most important, promote the development of the sector on basis of the private investment, and not on the basis of public investment. Well, as we know, renewable energy projects typically uh, require a large amount of capital in a long period of time to amortize to the investment, which usually translates into a great- greater risk. To mitigate this, the Dominican repo- the government promoted a renewable development model based on private investment with a clear legal, legal uh, framework and fiscal and economy economic incentive to motivate the participation of investors. That include four things. First, import tax exemption. Second, exemption uh, from income tax for certain amounts and periods. Third, tax reduction on external financing. And fourth, uh, tax incentive for self-producers. With this basis, currently the three main saving collectors of the Dominican financial system, those are insurance company, companies, pension funds administrators, and commercial banks have become the main financiers of renewable energy projects in the country. That's why electricity generation from renewable energies in the Dominican Republic is not big enough, but has grown exponentially with an, with an installed capacity that now reaches uh, 852 megawatts compared to the 33.5 megawatts in 2011 when the first wind energy project was installed. Of the total of the 852 megawatts, 49 percent correspond to wind energy and 47.5 percent to solar and 3.5 to biomass. Like many Iceland states, policymakers and other stakeholders have pushed for diversification of the energy matrix to reduce imports and use a more expensive, uh, expensive and polluting fo- uh, fossil, uh, fuels. St- uh, stimulated by a uh, favorable legislative and regulatory frameworks, the private sector has been the main driver in the development of cleaner energy sources. At present, it has managed to, to, the, to triple the amount of renewable energy installed by 2020, Thus, achieving that the electricity sector presents an investment of more than uh, 1,100 uh, million dollars in two and a half years of, of this government. In addition, there are definitive uh, definitive concession of 16 new renewable energy projects, of which eight of them will be inaugurated this year. This will make it possible to exceed to exceed the goal of the 25% renewable energies by twenty twenty five. So but we have some challenges. First, extend the institutional and regulatory framework of the electricity sector to ensure competitiveness in, in tariff and promote investment for the development of the sector. Second, plan and promote the development of generation, transmission and distribution infrastructure to operate the electric the electrical system. Third, promote the application of a strong environmental regular, regulation in electricity generation to adopt sustainable practices, and, fourth, promote a culture of energy efficiency in both the public and the private sectors. So, uh, finally, this initiative have made the Dominican Republic the country with the largest amount of renewable energy installed in, uh, and with the most diversified energy matrix in the Caribbean region, and we hope they can serve as a useful experience for Iceland states seeking to achieve a sustainable electricity energy uh, future. Then we leave you with a video of Eheheina, which in 2011 was the first company to cut down the wind farm uh, within the framework of the law of renewable energy uh, incentive. And it is a private and public. Um, uh, mix that it's uh, because of that is really interesting too. It's investment public and public in private investment, in inversion at the same time.
0: Thank you.
6: Ejejaina is the largest and most successful public-private company in the Dominican Republic. It generates sustainable electric power in a competitive and environmentally responsible manner contributing to the Dominican power sector's development. Eheina and its subsidiaries have invested over $1 billion in its electric power generation plants since 1999. More than 3,400 megawatts of new capacity have been installed in the Dominican Republic since 2011. Ehejaina developed and operates almost 25% of that added capacity. In 2022, Ehejaina produced around 13% of the energy used by the National Electric Interconnected System and supplied 23% of the energy consumption for non-regulated users through contracts. Ejehaina is the largest private issuer of corporate bonds in the local capital market. The company has obtained more than $1 billion in financing since 2009, half of which have been from successful direct local issuances. In 2021, the company became the first green bond issuer in the Dominican Republic securities market and the first Dominican issuer of a sustainability-linked bond in the international markets. Its financial position is supported by various credit ratings. Ejejaina operates over 1,000 megawatts generated with a diversified generation matrix that currently includes natural gas, 37%, wind and solar, 34%, Fuel, oil, 25%, and coal, 4%. The Sustainability Plan for Hehainas Operations seeks to contribute to the Dominican Republic's energy balance by producing electric power in an efficient and responsible way, thus reducing the country's dependency on fossil fuels. Since 2011, the company has installed four wind farms, two solar parks, with a third solar park coming soon, totaling almost 400 megawatts in renewable energy capacity. This represents 34% of Ehehaina's installed capacity. As a result of these investments, Ehehaina has become the largest producer of non conventional renewable energy in the West Indies. In 2022, Our solar farms and wind parks installed capacity avoided the emission of over 478,000 tons of CO2, considerably reducing the country's need for imported oil derivatives. We operate 12 power plants, 10 of which are owned by Ejejaina, and two belong to other companies. Our power generation units are distributed among five provinces, San Pedro de Macorís, San Cristobal, Barahona. Pedernales, and Valverde. Presently, a new solar plant, Sajoma, is being built in Santiago province. Ejejainas-owned plants. Quisqueya 2, San Pedro de Macorís. Sultana del Este, San Pedro de Macorís. Central Barahona, Barahona. Larimar Wind Park, Enriquillo, Barahona. Los Cocos Wind Park. Pedernales, Barahona Girasol Solar Park San Cristóbal Jaina TG San Cristóbal Central Pedernales Pedernales Quisqueya Solar San Pedro de Macorís Siba, Boca Chica, Santo Domingo Esperanza Solar Esperanza Valverde Coming Soon Sahoma Solar San José de las Matas, Santiago Third-party units operated by Ejejaina. Balenque, San Cristobal, Santo Domingo. Kilvio Cabrera, Wind Farm, Pedernales. The company has over 500 employees, of which 60% are professionals and 40% are technicians. Ejejaina is considered one of the best companies to work for in the Dominican Republic. It is also ranked number one on the list of the most admired companies in the Dominican electric power sector. Egeina excels nationally and regionally for high standards in corporate governance, risk management, human rights, labor, environmental and operational practices, consumer affairs, and community participation in accordance with the sustainability measurements and best practices. The company has received multiple awards and certifications for sustainability, health, safety, and environmental practices, gender equality, and inclusive culture. This year, the company will continue focusing on maintaining a high level of excellence in our operations, developing our expansion plan towards 2030, achieving a high financial performance and reaching sustainability goals in every area of the organization. Ege Energía Sostenible.
4: Okay, Uh, that was a very smooth and glossy uh, presentation. Let's assume that 99% of it, if not 100% is true. (laughs) It looks like an impressive story. Uh, What percentage of this company is owned by the government and what is private? It's a public-private partnership, right? So what is the government share? Could you tell me?
5: Forty-nine percent
4: is government. Okay, 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 okay. Great, great. Um, Okay, we'll come back to a discussion later. But now let's move to the next speaker, David Arinze.
0: No, uh, it's no. um, uh, Ambassador uh, Khan is the next speaker. You have the oh, sorry.
4: Okay, Ambassador. Yes, Yusra Khan. who is with the National Energy Council of Indonesia. I don't have a full CV for you, Dr. Khan, but please, you have the floor.
7: Thank you, moderator. And,
0: Master,
7: anyone, you want me to advance the slides? Yes, you can start, no, thanks. First of all, all, I would like to thanks for the opportunity to speak uh, before you with regard to the indonesian experience on renewable energy development on in indonesia's small islands case study in sumba islands two days ago I was approached by my permanent missions and asked that it was a request to give a contributions to our experience in developing our renewable in our small islands in indonesia so I think why not this is a great opportunity for me to share our experience who knows Part of it can also be valuable to support uh, your thinking about developing the renewable energy in small island development state. You can start now. I start with Indonesian overview. As you may know, Indonesia located between the Indian Ocean and Pacific Oceans. It's comprised of 17,000 islands such as Sumatra, Java, Sulawesi, Borneo, and Papua is the biggest islands in Indonesia. It is 14 largest country covering an area of 1.9 million square kilometers with a population of approximately 280 million people spread across 38 provinces. Indonesia is the fourth most populous country in the world. The energy resources in Indonesia consists of fossil fuel such as oil, natural gas, and coal, as well as renewable energy, including solar, geothermal, biomass, and hydro energy. What are the challenges in the electric sectors? First, geographical aspect. As we can see that Indonesia is an archipelagic country, it has become a challenge to build infrastructure across the islands. The demand is pro-demand predominantly concentrated in Java Islands as the most populous islands. Meanwhile, the energy sources are located all over the islands. Second, construction aspect. Construction of electricity infrastructure requires time-consuming permits from authorities, and every development need to be synchronized with special planning. Other than that, the land acquisition for the development may take time to negotiate with local societies. Third, the technical aspect. The technical aspect is associated with the nature of renewable energy sources. The supply continuity would be a huge concern, especially if the technology doesn't accommodate the issue. For example, solar and wind energy resources produce intermittent supplies affecting the quality of electricity system. The issue can be solved by incorporating storage technologies to the system. Fourth, economical aspect. A, renewable energy development in Indonesia requires relatively higher investment compared to fossil fuel, particularly coal. B, furthermore, Indonesia requires competitive finance schemes to support renewable energy development. C. Moreover, electricity prices in Indonesia are still subsidized due to social factors. Therefore, it is crucial to provide affordable tariffs. D. Additionally, promoting domestic content is encouraged, making local content an important consideration in renewable energy development. Fifth, social aspect. Support from the local society is crucial for renewable energy development, as they are the most important stakeholders. Capacity building within the local society is still necessary in an, is to enhance their knowledge and awareness. So our case study is the Sumba Iconic Islands. A specific case focuses on Sumba Iconic Islands, the islands next to Bali. This program, initiated by the Minister of Energy and Mineral Resources, the National Development Planning Body, and he was from Netherlands, adopts a multi-actor approach. The program aims to involve various stakeholders from the energy and non-energy sectors to contribute to the development of renewable energy and the environment on Sumba Island since around 2010. Sumba is in East Nusa Tenggara province. The province consists of many islands, so the province is archipelagic itself. Sumba Islands was selected as a case study based on the findings of a study at that time, which revealed several conditions on Sumba Islands. First, a very low level of electrification ratio among communities, amounting to 29.3% in 2013, with per capita electric consumption of 42 kilowatt hours, far below the national average at that time, which is 591 kilowatt hours. Second, the energy supply was still predominantly dependent on fossil fuels, particularly diesel or diesel power electricity generator that require fuel imports from outside of the islands. Third, its dominant renewable energy potential include wind power, solar power, hydropower, biomass and biogas power. Fourth. 20% of Sumba residents were classified as poor. Sumba Iconic Island is one of the success stories on renewable energy facilities provision in the rural and remote areas. The Sumba project are financed by multi-sources, such as the Specific Allocation Fund, grants from Netherlands, Mentari, Access Program, etc. Sumba Iconic Island Program Achievement Sumba Iconoc Island program has significant achievement. Since 2016, the contribution of solar generators has been getting bigger due to the existence of solar home systems and communal solar power plants. Currently, the share is 48%, follow hydro 40% and biomass 11%. PV technology is a renewable energy technology with the most diverse utilization. In 2022, it is identified that the capacity of renewable energy plants is 9.3 megawatt. Some other achievements of the program are as follows. In 2010, the electrification ratio was very low. It was about 24.5 percent. In 2022, the electrification ratio was increased to about 66.8 percent. Second. Renewable energy share in Sumba energy mix is about 20.9%. Prior to 2015, hydro power plants share were the largest on Sumba Islands. Currently, PV technology is widely used for renewable energy applications. Since 2015 and 2016, the contribution of solar power plant has increased due to the solar home systems and communal solar power plants. In 2022, Solar energy accounted for about 49% of the island's energy mix, followed by hydropower at 40% and biomass at 11%. Three, there are non-electricity facilities which brings benefit to society. Biogas and energy efficient wood cook stove technologies are widely implemented. Those technologies are successfully in empowering communities to increase income, family health and improve the children's education. So what are the lessons learned from renewable energy development in remote areas? From this program, we can draw the following lessons. First, it is crucial to involve the local community in the development programs right from the beginning to foster a sense of ownership and responsibility toward the renewable energy facilities. Second. Identifying a local champion, a key person who can mobilize the community and ensure proper management of the facilities, is of utmost importance. This local champion serves as a leader within the community. Third, there is an important establishing a formal and legal entity capable of running a business. The developed facilities should be professionally managed to cover costs and generate profit for sustainability. Transparency and accountability in business management are critical aspects of facility operations. Fifth, the successful project in one location can serve as a model for others. They must be adapted to suit the specific needs of local communities. Sixth, increasing capacities of providing post-installation support are also important aspects to address the gap between technologies' expertise, management capabilities, and public knowledge. Seven, it is vital to maintain strong coordination among stockholders, stakeholders such as central government, regional government, and state-owned electricity company. Eight, adopting a multi stakeholders approach is essential to ensure successful outcome. The provision of successful renewable energy facilities needs involvement of related stakeholders. In this regard, the roles of government are essential, as well as other stakeholders to ensure the sustainability of renewable Facilities. Thank you. Thank you very
4: much, Dr. Khan. Uh, one quick question. I I didn't catch it. Maybe you mentioned it, but I missed it. What is the population of uh, Sumba, Sumba Island?
7: Roughly. It's about two hundred thousand. Two hundred thousand. Okay. Yes. Great.
4: And uh, you mentioned the state electricity company. Is that the main supplier of electricity on the island, or is
7: it distributed amongst different suppliers? Yes, a distributed. It's distributed. Distribution company owned by the government. Right. Right. So it's the
4: main distributor, this state-owned company. State-owned company. Okay, yes.
7: okay mm-hmm. fine.
4: Okay, okay. Uh, we'll, we'll have some more questions coming up, but let's move on, since we're running short of time now, to uh, David Arinze. Uh, he's the program officer, off-grid energy at Diamond Development Initiatives, which is implementing partner for the United States African Development Foundation in Nigeria. He's leading a multi-million dollar off-grid energy portfolio, where he provides technical assistance for the successful implementation of clean energy projects such as mini-grids, solar home systems, clean cooking, and biogas projects. Uh, He's also serving as the global focal point for the SDG7 youth constituency. So without further ado, I pass it to Mr. Arinze. Please.
8: Great. Warm greetings, everyone. And it's such a delight to be here and thanks to the stakeholders forum for putting this very important uh, session together i would like to speak from a perspective of um, the contributions that youth can make and are already making towards the energy transition clearly we have a, cl- uh, a challenge on our hands and we are not on track it is obvious but while i would uh, while we are we have all been inundated by the data and um, already see what the challenges are. I'd like to propose some sort of recommendations on how countries can begin to approach these issues and also leverage on the power of youth you know, in addressing this. When you look at the energy transition um, agenda and achieving SDG 7, you see that when it comes to youth, You have youths who serve as students, who are early career professionals, and who are also entrepreneurs. And across these three different categories, there are different contributions that they make. For those who are early career professionals, are feeding to the workforce on a more corporate level. For those who are entrepreneurs, are leading on several innovations and technologies, and also trying to access relevant financing to accelerate and also scale their solutions. And we have seen that across these three um, categories that earlier mentioned, there is also a need for intentional capacity building programs that ensure that those who are in schools have an opportunity to plug in their whatever skills and talents that they have into meaningful jobs. To those who are already early career professionals, giving the necessary skills, the um, the competencies are also built to be able to also grow across the ladder uh, ladder and serve at very um, executive roles. Also, those that are entrepreneurs need to be able to get their ideas and their solutions funded. And one thing that we have seen also when I want to focus a bit more on the work that we do even in Nigeria and talking about entrepreneurship, we have seen that Even when it comes to companies that are playing at different scales, there are different types of needs. For those who are early stage, you need some sort of type of financing that will turn idea to product. You need some type of financing that will turn some products through multiple levels of iteration. And you also need some sort of financing that would scale up these solutions. At the end of the day, you begin to see that the current financing mechanisms that we have is not one that really encourages this, because why do we have... Um, the kind of gap in terms of financing that is supposed to come into the sector today that we don't have, because we're trying to unlock private capital. We may have governments do their own bit, philanthropic organisations do their own, make their own contributions. But if we do not design this roadmap of energy transition in a bankable and commercial, co- commercially viable manner, we won't get the kind of financing that we need. And so it is critical that we begin to have this set of conversations and look at things from this lens. Because energy is a business, and it must be paid for. And the reason why you see that till today we still have people who are willing to unlock private capital to fund oil and gas is because it has proven its profitability over a period of time. And so this is my recommendation to us country governments, Friends and uh, family of um, the stakeholders forum, we need to think inwardly How can we ensure that we support youths or entrepreneurs across playing across these value chains to be able to ensure that they can meaningfully turn relevant ideas that can help make contributions towards addressing the energy transition to move from that point from that level to the next level by having a product that can go through multiple levels of iterations yes when you have gone through all of that and you already have a company that shows the level of profitability then it begins to make sense to any investor any financiers but what happens if we do not really take care of the first two we won't be able to take care of the of the we won't be able to even get to the third Level in the, in the in the first place. So this is my recommendation to us that, in as much as we think around it, the data is there, the technology is there, the youth bringing their resilience, the solutions and their their innovation towards addressing this challenge. We need to look at youths playing across these different categories as a meaningful as meaningful contributors towards addressing the energy transition challenge. And if we do not really um, put a lot of focus to that. And again, um, one thing we also need to do in the course of that, as well, is to be able to ensure that relevant advocacy is happening. If we do not put a lot of attention to that, this is what would happen. The youth will feel like, oh, the older generations are just trying to do their thing and make the world uh, from whatever lens that they feel like. Meanwhile, they wouldn't see that this is going to significantly impact their generation the most. And this is my um, recommendation to us all. Thank you.
0: Thank you very
4: much, David. And now,
0: um, I just would like to uh, say we have one more uh, guest with us, uh, Miss Krušči uh, uh, Soubiras, who's come from Mauritius. So originally invited, and we weren't sure until the very last minute she'd be able to join us, and she has arrived all the way from Mauritius. So, if you wouldn't mind, uh, just make a few uh, a small contribution, we'd appreciate it very much.
9: Thank you very much. So, I would just like to add on what David said uh, on our youth engagement concerning the climate sector. The climate sector. Can you hear me? Thank you. So, yeah, if we really want to achieve climate efficiency over the future decades, it is also crucial that we invest in the climate, digital, and financial education of our youngsters. Our young people need to gather the knowledge, the skills, and experience that we will need for green jobs. The future of energy efficiency lies in the hands of our youth. It will only progress exponentially if our young people are educated, passionate, and engaged with the energy sector. Thank you.
4: a response to all of this rich information analysis that we have heard from Claudia Maria Mansfield Perez. Uh, Claudia, I won't go into your long CV, but I will just say that you are counselor at the permanent mission of the Dominican Republic to the UN where you have been focusing on uh, sustainable development for some time, responsible for negotiating resolutions on improving transparency and accountability in strategic UN partnerships, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so with that, you have the floor, Claudia.
9: Thank you, um, let see how I can do this. Thank you very much, David, for um, that good introduction. I have a very long name, I'm afraid, um, but you did very well. Um, I think that we have been very lucky to um, witness this very interesting discussion, and uh, which has highlighted actually, actions that are being taken at the, at the national level to um, promote the achievement of SDG 7. Um, I think that we have heard that integrated approaches are crucial, and they have to take all stakeholders into account. From the grassroots level, all the way up to the head of state level. I think that we can all agree that political uh, will is crucial. And the fact that we have high-level representatives is, is a testimony to this. Um, Belize talked about the holistic approach to energy resilience. Um, it's impressive that over half of the energy in the country comes from renewable sources. It's really, it really is a good example uh, to follow and, and, and to know about. You say that technology and innovation are key, and the minister mentioned smart grids. Uh, he also said that systems need to be flexible, interconnected, and consumer-centered, so people need People are definitely in the middle, and um, I believe another one of the speakers, uh, Ambassador Tan from Indonesia, talked about them, uh, people as consumers. So definitely, that that's, that's something that that um, we have to take into account. Belize also has something that the that the minister did not mention, but I do think is a little bit relevant, and it is a very interesting debt for nature swap mechanism, which you call blue bonds. And that's also innovative. And, and it adds to, to the good work that, that you are doing in this regard. Uh, my own country, the Dominican Republic, uh, well, talks about the uh, fact that having a lot of economic growth is a good thing, but it's also challenging. And uh, dependence on fossil fuels is still something that, that we need to tackle. We do have good um, goals and targets when when it comes to renewable energy, and uh, this can only be done with the help of legislation and regulatory frameworks. Private investment is key, and I think the Dominican Republic has been pragmatic in having the private sector as a partner, saying, you have the money, you need to be involved. So I think that that is something that that is also relevant to, to mention. Renewable energy infrastructure has increased exponentially, and um, like we saw in the video, investment amounts have been quite sizable, so it is possible to capture and attract uh, foreign investment investment uh, with the right um, incentives. And I would like to mention also um, what our colleague David has said, I didn't say. That yes, projects have to be financially viable because I don't think that the Dominican Republic would have been able to attract the, the amounts it has been able to attract if it had if the projects weren't uh, viable in a way, in a way. And yes, energy is still a business, and I think that we also need to take that into account and and know that. I like the uh, well, I like the presentations, but Ambassador can highlights uh, the success story of Zumba Iconic Island. I did not know that Indonesia, I know it had many islands, but 17,000 is a lot of islands. <laughs> and uh, that, it's not surprising that it's, that it's the most, uh, the fourth most popular country in the world. Um, the idea of cha- community level champions reminds me of what uh, David was saying about uh, having entrepreneurs also in a way as champions. So. The, uh, I think that identifying the right people, be it at the community level, at the, at the uh, academic level, at the entrepreneurship level, is also key. The right people, not only the right stakeholders, but the right people and, um, is something that we need to to take into account. And, yes, the representative for Mauritius, uh, green jobs are the future, and young people, Are the most interested in green jobs I know because my son just graduated from as an an electrical engineer and power engineering is his passion. So definitely, green jobs is something that we that is it is the future. Um, I just want to mention something that was uh, not, uh, of course, um, highlighted in the presentations. But I do I do think that we need to talk about the urgency of the matter. Uh, Last week, I was speaking to a scientist when the wave of pollutants from the Canadian fires hit our region again. Do you remember that? A couple of weeks ago. Um, She told me that when they were modeling forest fires, it was Siberia that they were thinking about. They were thinking that the fires were going to be in Siberia. They never thought that the boreal forests from Canada would start burning. And then she said, imagine if we didn't model Canada, what else are we not modeling? what what uh, what other challenges are there so um, we really do have seven years and uh, the window of opportunity is closing as we speak like uh, the ambassador from samoa said and i hope uh, i have hope from this uh, presentations that we are on the right track and um, if all countries were doing what belize Dominican Republic and Indonesia are doing, I think that uh, we may get to the achievement of SDG seven by 2030 and definitely islands are leading the way. Thank you very much. Okay,
4: thank you very much. Um, So we would like to ask all of you to Jump in with your questions, burning questions to the presenters. Who's going to be the first? Yes, sir. Introduce yourself,
3: please. Can you hear me? Yeah. Muchas felicidades por la presentación de la Republica Dominicana. Congratulations, everyone, to the presentation of the Dominican Republic. My name is Valentin Calki Camano Rivera, and I am a co director for youth engagement and leadership for Man Up campaign, Mexico chapter in Mexico. So my question to you is, in the public sector, in the Dominican Republic, how many uh, percentages of youth are engaged in the working force? That would be my question, thank you very much.
0: Um, thank you, David. Um, for the panel, uh, and anyone else who would like to contribute, what you're thinking uh, on a just energy transition for fossil fuel energy workers, uh, you know, and those less skilled public sector and private sector workers whose livelihoods depend on the current uh, carbon-based, land-based transportation system, how will they deal – how will they – fair in, tra- in the transition.
4: Okay, um, any other questions
3: from the floor? Yes, please introduce yourself. opportunity while it's here. Um, Suzanne from Ireland, which is a slightly different type of small island nation with very different weather patterns. But I'm conscious of, I suppose, the disruptive nature of taking back control of energy generation and energy production back into communities. We've had a couple of small examples where uh, communities have come together, maybe and rented a field and put solar panels in it. Low-income communities putting wind or um, turbines into rivers to be able to generate their own activity. And I am just curious about because we, we, I mean, Ireland is somewhere where people are connected to the grid. But our biggest concern will be, say, the transition. Like the, the war in Europe has really highlighted how reliant we are on fossil fuels, on gas, and then I think prices have gone up by 100% in the last five years, so people are experiencing slightly different challenges when it comes to energy. But I'm just curious about examples maybe of that community-led, and because it is a business, I think that's the disruptive piece. If I actually own the means of production, like that's hugely disruptive, and I'm just curious if there's any other examples of that I'd love to hear. Thank you.
4: Come back to the panel who want to jo- join in, please, Luis.
5: Thank you. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have the question, the, the exact question for the first, uh, the exact response for the uh, the first question. Maybe I could take your number, something. I could, I could say about the the uh, the young persons in the in the workforce of the state, right? The, of the private. I don't, I don't remember. I mean. I feel young, but I'm not young anymore. For for the for the United Nations, I have eight, I have six years that I come out from that. So so, but I, I can I can make some some research and maybe I could give you that about the transportation. It's a it's a big issue for us, and it is a big issue not just because of the, the, the transition, if not because uh, it has a big impact also in the finance in the financials. Um, in our in our um, tax matrix, the um, the fuel uh, uh, is it's a big um, tax for us. So we are now thinking about <laughs> we are in the transition. We have uh, we have a law that incentive the imports of of electric cars of electric mm-hmm. vehicles. Uh, we have uh, we have improved a lot in the in the um, infrastructure of chargers. Uh, we, got a, we got a company, we got a, a company that, not just in Dominican Republic, but in the Caribbean is exporting the chargers mm-hmm. and all those things. But now we have a discussion in the economic part of the government. So how are we going to, to substitute the tax uh, revenues from the, uh, from the fuels when we translate to the when we to, to the electric uh, mobility but we are in uh, we are in that we have the law we have a infrastructure and we are promoting the uh, that that road to the to the electric mo- mobility just that we have to, to say, so i and i and i think that not just not just us i think this is a a, a, a uh, international problem or te- theme that we have to discuss in these kind of, of meetings of how we are going to to um, to substitute the revenues from the uh, the tax revenues from the from the fuel when we uh, finally convert our matrix of the transportation in an electric tra- transportation.
4: Right on that, may I ask you? Um, I mean, a large portion, if I'm not mistaken, of the taxes on Fuel for motor vehicles is going to things like uh, maintenance of roads and infrastructure for transport. Uh, You'll still have transport infrastructure and cars, even if they're electric. So, have you thought about how how you're going to switch the tax base to? Mm -hmm. You you have all of the possibilities of monitoring, you know, through electronic means the movement of cars and possibly, you know. Metering their use of the roads, essentially mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. whatever uh, <laughs> remote cameras and, and so on. Have you been looking into that, or what is your main alternative that you're looking at for no, that, substituting?
5: That's what I'm saying. I'm, say- I'm saying. I mean, we don't have a, a solution and a, a big solution yet, but we are we are
1: working in that in that point. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. Anybody else want to jump in?
1: Carlos. Yeah, uh, thank you uh, very much indeed for the questions. Uh, looking at the issue of economics, indeed, uh, that has been an issue that um, we have recognised. Uh, but we have looked at a thing holistically. We recognise uh, in Belize um, we get a lot of the tax revenue indeed from uh, a tax on the imported fuel. However, when the price of petroleum worldwide goes up above a hundred US dollars per gallon. The Caribbean was spending more than 75% of its foreign exchange just to buy the -hmm. the petroleum. So obviously it made sense to use our uh, indigenous resources to generate uh, energy. So we looked at that that, uh, holistically. The issue of just transition, I am very concerned that uh, especially the big petroleum exporters are using that as an excuse of not not transitioning. Uh, And indeed, we have made a transition already, as uh, as we mentioned, uh, in 1992 we began that transition and we retrained the people who were maintaining the generators into then maintaining the the renewable energy uh, systems. And now, in the energy sector, transport is a big uh, source of emissions. And so that's an area we're not looking at, of of going to uh, e-mobility. And we like that because our energy will be from renewable energy to charge the systems. It will not be another, another source of, uh, of energy from the petroleum sector. It will be actually renewable energy sources. Uh, and so we are now uh, putting in the infrastructure in place to ensure that there are charging stations across the country. Both the electrical company and the private sector are now investing in that area so that there's going to be the, uh, the incentive for people to actually buy the, um, the the electric uh, vehicles uh, and, and use that instead of the, of these old cars that we tend to import from the U.S. Great, thank you. How about
4: Dr. Uh, Khan, would you like to come in? So Please. One more time. Go ahead, press again. Yeah. There, okay. okay.
7: Thank you. For Indonesia, since we set our net zero emission 2060 or earlier, we come with what so-called the uh, national Uh, energy policy. In 2014, we set for what's so-called the mixed energy, where we set the target to have a renewable energy. Like for example, our target in 2021, we are now for the new and renewable energy, 12.2 percent. But in 2025, we said to have renewable energy by 23 percent and 2050 by 31 percent where three of them, which is dominantly now used in Indonesia like oil, natural gas, and coal will be reduced by the time. And secondly, we also set the government regulation on early retirement of the coal combustion uh, electricity. Planned. By 2056, we are planning to have off non coal combustion in our electricity plant. And the third is for the electricity, for the car electricity, vehicle electricity. We also set a regulation that we subsidize for the purchase of the car, of the electric car with the battery. For the f- car, for the vehicle, we give them subsidies for about, but basically to reduce the import tax. Yes, uh, that's there's, there's not only for the vehicle, car vehicle, but also for the motor vehicle. As you know that our motor vehicle population in Indonesia is one one hundred and seventy millions. You're talking about
4: motorcycles? Motorcycles. Yes. motorcycles. motorcycles. Yeah. So what we are doing
7: now is the program of conversion the engine of the motor vehicle into the electric mm-hmm. motor vehicle based on the battery.
0: Converting the existing vehicle. Converting yes. the existing vehicles,
7: you know. We start slowly by Like last year, for example, we achieved about 35,000 motor vehicles altogether, but the importing of the motor vehicle based on electricity battery is now getting bigger and bigger. I don't know how how much it is now, uh, the figures, the data, but if we can see, if we go to the village now, now more people in the village use the motor vehicle based on electricity and battery. So we give the subsidized for the conversion of the engine from the fossil fuel engine to the battery or electricity, as well as the car. So that's all the practical that we are doing right now.
4: Great. Thank you very much.
7: You. Uh, yes, David, please.
8: Thank you. Um, to the question by the gentleman asking about the number of youths uh, that are in the government, I think in Dominican government. I think that beyond just, um, it's fine not to even have the, the, the data, but what is most important is to have the consciousness to have youths playing at every state of government, to have youths involved. And, um, and so that question should be more like a call to action to everyone. What are we doing or what do we need to start doing intentionally to have youths as part of our workforce? Well, and to your question, um, Charles, about transitioning the workforce, that's a very important thing that um, a lot of focus needs to be given because I would say that even back in Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, my country, Nigeria, we're very big on oil exploration. We, we, we are we a major producer of oil, of oil, you know, and the deposits are still there. And this has also created a bit of a challenge because people, institutions, organizations, companies have built their models around fossil fuels. And for us to be able to transition, we need to be able to have much more in-depth advocacy and to really make those who are within the workforce know that this is not a ploy to make them jobless or to lose a source of livelihood, but one that creates an opportunity and a pathway to a cleaner and better future. And so there has to be deliberate programs across countries that are reskilling those who are still able to work within the workforce to be able to work from, non-fossil- from fossil fuel technologies to non-fossil fuel technologies. And also, just to add to that, for those who have taken the courage to play in non-fossil fuel businesses, there should be relevant incentives, you know, and that is something that needs to be done in a very systematic, collaborative way, because at the end of the day, you don't want to turn your countries against themselves, your, your continents against themselves. What we seek is a cleaner and better future for everyone. And so that needs to be shared, that needs to be re-emphasized, that messaging needs to be shared abroad. And I'm sure that with this sort of deliberate um, action, we'll be able to see progress. And lastly, I'd like to talk about the need to consistently gather data, monitor the progress, and also evaluate. What are we doing right, based on the um, information that, and the data that we have, whatever actions we are taking, is it taking us to the direction? that we want to get to. And if we see that it is not, what are we doing to change our approach so that we can get to that destination? We need to constantly monitor and evaluate the progress of what we are doing, the actions that we are taking, to see that it is taking us to the destination of a clean, uh, um, uh, for, uh, for clean, equitable, and inclusive energy future for all. Thank you.
4: Thank you. Thank you very much, David, and thank you to all of the speakers, presenters, panelists today. Um, I think we're out of time, so I will uh, pass the floor to uh, our host, Charles, for final remarks.
0: Thank you, David, and uh, especially for moderating uh, the event Uh, I'd like to thank everyone uh, for joining us today. Uh, We've been on UN TV, so around the world, as well as around this table. Uh, Thank you to Ambassador Khan, Ambassador Fuller, uh, Vice Minister Sued, uh, and to all of our uh, friends at the Dominican and Belize missions for their efforts to make this uh, happen today. Uh, Thank you to the UN tech team for bringing it all together for us at the last minute. Thank you, the rest of you, and enjoy the rest of your time at the HLPF And uh, goodbye, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you.